0: What I follow, something like that? Well, it's good to be uh, back this week. Uh, last week I was at a church of a student, a student of mine who had planted a church a year ago, and it was their one-year anniversary, and he asked if I could come to that service a couple months ago, and I told him yes. So I know that some of uh, you may have visited for the first time last week to hear our study on Daniel, and uh, you were somewhat disappointed that I wasn't here, but you had a great teacher and uh, I'm glad you're back. And I want to encourage you, if you uh, if you enjoy the class after a few Sundays, that you might consider joining the class. If you'd like to join the class, you can see Glenn, and he'll tell you all about that. And uh, also, if you're interested in discussing the sermon more, after the class is over, uh, there's usually a group that goes to lunch, and it's called the Lunch Bunch. And this is basically anybody's opportunity to correct anything that i say wrong i've said you know so anyway if you're interested in uh going to uh, lunch you can see me and i'll tell you where we're going so uh that's usually right after the class okay take your bibles and turn to daniel chapter three and i would like to remind you once again that uh, if you happen to miss a particular sunday we do have each class on video streaming on the President's Class website. So you can, uh, I think it's uh, on there, what is it John, the very next day or two days after the lesson, it's actually on the website, so you can watch watch the lesson, usually Monday night. Okay, Daniel chapter 3. Now Daniel chapter 3 is the story of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. Only that phrase, Hebrew children, uh, is a misnomer because they're closer to 35 years of age <laughs> when they are put in the fire uh, than 15, okay? And let me explain how I know that, because in Daniel chapter 1, we have an overview of the book, which is a 70-year overview telling about Israel's uh, captivity in Babylon, then chapter 2 begins uh, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And he reigns for 40 of those 70 years. Chapter 2, the beginning of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 4, the end of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And that leaves chapter 3 right in the middle. And it takes place about halfway through his reign which means that the Hebrew children are actually 35 years of age since they were about 15 or 16 when they were captured. Now, chapter 3 revolves around the building of a monument that Nebuchadnezzar erects to honor himself. Okay? So let's look at the description of the monument in verse 1. Daniel 3, verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image... Of gold. So that's the composition. Whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. So now we have the composition and the dimensions of the statue. Now, a cubit is 18 inches. So it says in verse 1 it was 60 cubits high, which means it was 90 feet high six cubits wide which means it had a base of about nine feet now at this time uh, which would make it about 10 stories it would be it would be about the size of the Statue of Liberty so that can put it in some sort of perspective only the base would be much narrower so it would be a narrow narrow needle like structure and we believe that the statue was the image of a man probably nebuchadnezzar himself and a statue that's 60 or 60 cubits high and even if it was just overlaid with gold not solid gold it would still be worth millions and millions and millions of dollars now to give you some idea how big this was the colossus of rhodes which was built 350 years after this event was only 15 feet higher than the statue. And the Colossus of Rhodes was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Which means that this would have been the largest structure at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So it was an architectural uh, wonder. And then it goes on to say in verse 1, He set it in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, the exact location where the statue sat was not discovered until the late 1800s. In other words, we knew that the Bible said there was a statue, but we never had any historical evidence. But in the late 1800s, archaeologists discovered the very base of this statue six and a half miles southeast of Babylon and note the word at the end of verse 3 that it was on the plain of Dura and if something is on a plain that means it can be seen for miles and so as you were entering Babylon from the southeast uh, or from the southwest as you were coming toward the southeast you would have been able to see this high structure for miles on end. now I know that because Dallas is built on a plain and I live in Rockwall 25 miles away, and I can see the buildings in Dallas from my home in Rockwall. And why? Because it's built on a plane, And so he made sure that it was large enough that it could be seen from miles. Now, it's important to understand that this statue is probably a replica of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in chapter 2. Now, remember it? he has what's called a prophetic dream it's a dream that God gave him he didn't realize it came from God but it was a God given dream of a statue that was made of four metals the statue was that of a man the head was made of gold the chest and the arms were made of silver the legs were made of bronze and the feet were made of iron And each one of those metals represented a kingdom. The head of gold, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. The chest of silver, Persia, Media. The legs of bronze, Greece, Alexander. And then the feet, Rome, under the Caesars. Each empire would defeat the one before it. And I believe that this statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds is the statue of his dreams, but guess what he does? He makes the whole statue gold. In other words, he says the whole statue represents Babylon. And what he's saying by building a statue completely of gold is that I never intend to give up my power, and there will never be a power that overthrows Babylon and so in a sense even though God has given him a prophetic dream his goal is to alter God's plan now that's speculation on my part but I think it makes sense in the context so here we have a description of the statue now I want you to notice the dedication of the statue look at verse 2 and King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satra- uh, satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providences to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up now this is his guest list these are the people who are invited to the dedication ceremony it's a who's who of the elite in the babylonian empire now where i come from back east baltimore maryland there used to be a woman that lived in washington dc named pearl messa anybody remember pearl Mesta, she threw the greatest bashes and celebrations In the United States. And she had a list, an exclusive list, of 400 people that she would invite. This is the list of 400. The most important people in the entire empire coming here for the dedication. Now look at verse 3. It says, and so they satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province." gathered together here we have the arrival of the guest for the dedication of the image that the king had set up and so all these famous people are gathering together sort of like an academy award ceremony where you see all these famous people that you know on television they come for the academy awards isn't that going to be this week or in the next week or two and you're going to see all these different people show up and look what it says at the end of verse 3 and they stood before the image that nebuchadnezzar had set up and that's what you're going to see they're all going to be standing out in front of the building where the academy awards are going to be and they're going to be the cameras and the reporters and there'll be people that are standing on the other side of of the ropes and they're going to be looking at the famous people and they'll be gawking and we're going to be gawking on television and that's exactly the scene that you have here and now the opening ceremony the curtain rises and it says in verse four then a herald cried aloud That word herald means a preacher, in a sense. Same word as preacher. This is a guy who can raise his voice very loudly. And uh, he says, To you it is commanded, all peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony, with all kinds of music, You shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So we have this opening ceremony and we have the announcement that everything is to begin and we have instructions. Now I want you to notice a couple things. Two things are happening in verses 4 and 5 that may not be apparent. Number one, they're asked to worship an image, Worship that the president or the emperor, the king, has set up. We have here a blending of church and state. A blending of church and state. You have the king, in a sense, instituting a religion or an image to which all people are to bow. Okay. The second thing, you have a motive behind that, and his goal is to bring all the people. Notice it says in verse 5, first 4 all peoples nations and languages he has captured a lot of different countries and people speak different languages and they have different skin colors different beliefs different gods and he's bringing them all together to bow down and worship one statue so he's establishing in a sense uh, a state religion and he wants the people unified around this religion To give their allegiance to this one religion that he's establishing. Just as King Henry VIII established a religion in England. When he wanted to get a divorce and the Pope would not allow him to get divorced, he broke with the Catholic Church and started the Church of England. Here was a leader starting his own religion. Now everybody born in England does not have to belong to the Church of England, but it is the state religion. And you do have to acknowledge it, and guess what else you have to do? You have to pay taxes, which then pay the ministers of that state religion. So this is an acknowledgment that there is an official religion. Now to understand what's happening, you need to realize that when one country defeated another country, the victor believed that its gods were stronger than defeated countries' gods. So if Babylon defeats Egypt, Babylon's gods are stronger than the Egyptian gods. If Babylon defeats Israel, then Nebuchadnezzar believes that his gods, Marduk and Bel and all these other gods are stronger than Israel's god, Jehovah. And so now, all these people from the defeated nations and those that he has made officials back in those nations, sort of like vassal kings, now must come and bow down to the image. Can they still hold on to their gods? Yes. But they have to admit that nebuchadnezzar's god is the ultimate god so that's what we're dealing with at this point it's important that you realize that now also notice in verse 5 and this is for those of you who are movie uh, music buffs. notice that the royal orchestra is there they have the horns which were made of animal horns the horns of animals flutes which were made from reeds And then we have stringed instruments, harps, lyres, psaltery, and King James actually says, uh, decimers and and a few other things there. But look at this, all in symphony with all kinds of music. And so here we see that this is a major occasion and that he has the royal orchestra there and they're all dressed up in their black tuxedos or their gold braided uniforms or whatever it is. And this, and they're going to sort of strike the note. And that's the opening exercise, And instead of just sitting back in your seats, listening to the music, you're all to bow down before the orchestra. So this we could have liken, likened this to an inauguration when the president is inaugurated, and he has maybe the one of the military bands there, or they have the the uh, symphony from Washington, dC., the National Symphony there, and they strike up the music, and uh, they play "Hail to the Chief" and all this kind of stuff. So you have this official music going on and there's a lot of ceremony and pomp and pageantry here okay now there is a warning that is issued in verse six at the end of the instructions it says whosoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace now they don't expect anyone not to bow down this is just something that they would just a warning, you know, we want the nation to be unified, this is a come to be time to be unified, not to grout about something, we want to see the whole nation exhibit unity, okay, so this is sort of a protocol thing, now we have the dedication service actually described in some detail, okay, so look at verse 7, look at verse 7 so at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music all the peoples nations languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which nebuchadnezzar had set up everything went as plain until <laughs> until the unexpected happens that always happens doesn't it something you know if you're at the academy award ceremony a light in the camera goes out. You know, somebody runs across the stage. You know, without any clothes. Some crazy thing that you you couldn't have anticipated in your wildest dreams happens. It always happens. The microphone stops working, and you're having to you know do that. That's just the way it is. And so they have sort of uh, a fly in the ointment, and we see this suddenly an accusation is made in verse eight. It says this. Therefore, at that certain time. When all this was to happen, the Chaldeans, who were wise men that were working for the king, came forward and accused the Jews. They said, they spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever, long live the queen. You know, one of those statements. That's how you always had to address it when you got into his presence. O king, live forever. You, O king, made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn flute harp, wire and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the image, the gold image and whosoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the provinces of Babylon we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego these men O oh king have number one, not paid due regard to you. Number two, they do not serve your God, gods. And number three, or worship the gold image which you have set up. And so they leveled charges against the three Hebrew men. Now what are the motives for these charges. Well, first of all, obviously the guys did not do what the king had said to do. But I believe hidden in verses 8 and 12 you see two major motives. And the first is hate. Because notice how how they address uh, the three Hebrew men. It says, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. The Jews. Now that was a, you know, did he actually accuse every Jew? No, they were using this in a derogatory uh, way. You can almost hear the disdain in their in their voices as they say, the Jews. So I'd say hate is a motive, and I think jealousy is a motive, because in verse 12, look what it says. There are certain Jews, and look at this next phrase, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They resent that the king has made these foreigners, the leaders, and have given them key positions in the government and in the administration, and so they charge these men with not obeying the king's command. Now, at this point, we need to ask a very important question. I'm not sure we can answer it, but the question is this, where's Daniel? Where is Daniel? He's a Jew. Did Daniel bow down and worship the idol? What do you think of that? No, he didn't. Daniel won't do any of that kind of stuff. So that must mean that Daniel either is so powerful that they were afraid to cast uh, accusation against him, or Daniel is not in town during this particular event even though it's probably the major event in the first half of the king's administration maybe Daniel is back in the palace having actually having to run the affairs of the nation during this event but the scripture is silent so we don't know all we know that three are charged now look what happens we have an examination of the three look at verse 13 then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to Bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've set up? Can't believe you've done this the way I've treated you, when I've set you over the affairs of my administration. this is the way you treat me you humiliate me in front of you know the guests of the most the 400 most important people now i don't know if he does that publicly he may do that publicly or he may be speaking to them privately at this point but he says is it true and so to save face he's going to be gracious to them. he's going to give them a second opportunity to bow down and uh, just in case they misunderstood. And so he's going to help them save face and help himself save face. So he's going to give them a second opportunity. Look at verse 15. He says, now, now, if you are ready, at this time, I evidently we caught you off guard. You weren't ready before. Now, if you're at ready this time, uh, hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. Look at that. That'll be okay. We'll forget about the other indiscretion. That'll be okay. So, he's trying to uh, give them a second chance. In fact, it's really a stroke of genius because if they bow down now, just these three are bowing down. Everybody else has already done the bowing. If these three bow down in front of all the guests, he will come off as a real hero, and the crowds will just start cheering the king, and uh, he's going to come off looking better than even before. And then he asks a real taunting question. He says, but, uh, let me just keep reading first. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fire. If you do not worship, you'll be cast into the midst of the burning fire. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Now, I want you to think of the genius of this plan that he came up with right off of the top of his head. If uh, the question, by the way, is a good one, because if God, if the Jewish God couldn't deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar's gods defeated their gods. If he couldn't deliver the nation, certainly God's not going to be able to deliver them out of a fiery furnace. So uh, he's making, he wants them to think about about that. So what he wants to do is he wants to prove that the gods of Babylon are supreme. Now watch this. What he look at the strategy? That's his goal to prove that the gods of Babylon are supreme, and he wants to save faith. If the Jewish boys bow down to the image they will admit that the gods of Babylon are supreme isn't that right? if they refuse to bow down and he throws them into the fiery furnace then of course their god isn't going to be able to deliver them then that proves that the gods of Babylon are supreme so it's a win-win situation for Nebuchadnezzar so he thinks he's got the bull by the horns at this point so now we have shadrach meshach and abednego's answer in 16 they said to the king oh nebuchadnezzar we have no need to answer you in this matter you know we don't even have to think about this thing they don't have to Decide whether they are going to bow down or not that's not even a decision they have to make at this point you know why same reason that daniel didn't have to give in to the king and eat the king's food and drink the king's wine because that matter had been settled years ago that was a conviction daniel when he was a little kid knew he would never defile himself with unclean food and no king was going to make him do it and these three guys knew the first two commandments that you should have no other God before you and you should never bow down before a graven image. And so that matter was settled a long time before. And so they said, we don't have to think about an answer, King. Verse 17, it says, if this is the case, in other words, if we end up going into fire, this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Look, he is able to deliver us from the burning fire. He is able to do it. Now, we don't know whether he'll do that or not. But he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, if we get thrown in that fire, let it be known to you, O king that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. And so, at this point, the king goes bonkers. He has now not only been embarrassed by their lack of obedience the first time, but now they have defied him in open, and so he decides to execute them which he never wanted to do to begin with. Verse 19 says this. Look at his wrath. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And this is a great statement here. And the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which tells us that the first time he was trying to give them an out. But now his countenance changes and his neck gets red and starts moving up all the way up to his hairline. And he gives the command that says he spoke, verse nineteen, and he commanded that the heat of the furnace look at this. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Now we know from ancient records that they had these great big blast furnaces that were usually heated to 1500 degrees which was the temperature that it took to cremate a body and he had this furnace heated seven times that now i don't know if that's what we call hyperbole or if that was literal but the point that the writer is making is that these guys have no chance of survival they're going to be ashes within seconds and I think that's the point that he wants to make and then he commanded look at verse 20 certain mighty men, men of valor we're talking about decorated soldiers who were in his army to bind Shadrach Meshach and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. And so there's no chance whatsoever that these guys are going to get away. They're not going to pull off any tricks, and the fire is so hot that when they go in, immediately they'll be burned to death, and their God won't even have a chance to rescue them. He's making sure that there's he's not going to be embarrassed a third time. Now look at verse 21. Verse 21. Then these men were bound in their coats and their trousers, their turbans and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. They're put in there with their dress clothes on. You know, Usually you don't execute a person that way. But he didn't even want them to have time to maybe escape by changing their clothes and putting on an execution outfit or anything like that. And he wants to act so quickly that God of the Jews doesn't have a chance even to get from heaven to earth to rescue these guys. Now, he doesn't understand that God is omnipresent. He doesn't have a concept like that. Or that God is omnipotent. 10,500 degree fires don't bother him. In fact, God's an all-consuming fire. That fire would be like, you know, jumping in the ocean for for the Lord. So he doesn't realize any of that kind of stuff. But look at verse 22. Therefore, because the King command, command was urgent and the fire exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men, those mighty men of valor, who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just getting close to the furnace, calls their death. Now you've been next to your grill sometimes when it's burning hot. After it's been burning for an hour, and you get too close to your grill, you have to move away, don't you? Can you imagine a fire that's thousands of degrees? And so here are these men, and they're struggling. But it's interesting, even though the men who bound them died, doesn't seem to affect Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they get near the furnace. That's sort of strange. You never noticed that too much before, did you? And then verse 24 says this. Well, they throw them in. Evidently, they get them into the furnace. And I can't imagine what that would have been like, because that would have had to be a horrible sight for these 400 distinguished guests. To see these three people thrown into a fire had to be, you know, terrifying. But I'll tell you one thing it'll do. It'll cause you to fear the king, won't it? And that probably was another purpose. And uh, he throws them in. Now, these blast furnaces, these ancient blast furnaces, had two openings. They had an opening at the top. And usually there was a ramp that you had to go up. And there was an opening in the top. And you that's where you threw, put in the fuel. You put in the wood and, and so forth and then there was an opening in the side and that's where you stoked the fire they had bricks on the bottom of these things and those bricks would get very hot and so they throw these guys into the fire and look what happens. look at verse 24 it says then king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and he spoke saying to his counselors did we not cast three men Bound? Bound? Remember that word? In the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king, Look! He answered. I see four men, Look at this Loose, Walking in the midst of the fire, And they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth Is like The Son of God. Or literally like one of the sons of the gods and in Nebuchadnezzar's mind there he sees a fourth being that he assumes is a a divine messenger that one one of the gods may have sent down he doesn't know who it is but that's what that means he's he's not thinking Jesus in his own mind but he knows there's a fourth person in the fire that's divine and evidently is protecting these guys and the only thing that's burned are the ropes Because now they're loose. (laughs) So the robes burn off their hands and their feet. But their clothes aren't consumed. Nothing else is consumed except the robes. And it says, And when Nebuchadnezzar, verse 26, went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here then shadrach meshach and abednego came from the midst of the fire now something supernatural is happening here isn't it? because the king even though he probably didn't go right up inside there where he'd get burned he gets close enough where he can shout to him and says come on out and so they come on out now guess who's still in the fire well, the fourth man's still in the fire. <laughs> he's still in there. He doesn't come out, and uh, which is really interesting. And when you go through the fire, you always know that the Lord's with you, and you don't ever have to worry about going through the fire alone because when we go through our trials of fire, the Lord is always with us. It doesn't matter whether it's a trial of fire during our lifetime, he's in the fire with us, or whether it's at the end of our life, he says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? Thou art with me. And So here the Lord is with us through all circumstances, whether we can see him or not. He's always there. And then we have the king's confession in verse 27. or Actually, in that verse, he says in verse 26, He calls them the servants of the Most High God. The servants of the Most High God. Now, up until that time, he was thinking that his God was the most high God. Now, it's interesting, back in chapter 2, remember when Daniel gave him the answer to his dream? He then said, Daniel's God was the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Do you remember that? Look back in uh, chapter 2 and verse 47. Chapter 2 and verse 47. Look what it says there. The king answered Daniel... And he said, truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. And then he made a proclamation that uh, the whole province should uh, recognize Daniel's God. So, back in chapter 2, which was the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he made a similar confession that he makes in chapter 3 and verse 26. But about 20 years have passed since that time. And in those 20 years, he's forgotten that initial confession. And he had an initial understanding who God was in a crisis in his life, and he acknowledged God at the beginning of his reign. But then when things got better, guess what? Totally forgot about God. So God gets his attention again, right in the middle of his reign. And he makes that confession again, that the Jewish God is the most high God. Now back in chapter 3 in verse 27, we have the diplomats, their reaction to all this. They sort of do an inspection. It says, the satraps and the administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power, and the hair on their head was not singed, nor their garments affected. And the smell of fire was not on them. And so they inspected and they confirmed that indeed a miracle has happened. And then verse 28 we have Nebuchadnezzar's admission. Look what he says. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel, meaning his messenger, And delivered his servants who trusted in him. Now look at this phrase. And they frustrated the king's word. Everything I said did not come to pass. What they said was true. I was wrong. They were right. And they yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god and so what we have here is we have an admission of defeat and at this point the ceremony of the dedication of that image comes to a dead halt suddenly it becomes totally insignificant the millions that he spent building that image and the purpose that he had of bringing the country together under a state religion so all of his officials and all the important people would be unified in one cause. Suddenly, come to a complete end. And Nebuchadnezzar says, "There is a god that's greater than my god. It's the god of the Jews. It's Jehovah." Now look at the uh, look at the results here. Look at verse twenty-nine. We have the king's new declaration. Therefore, in light of that. In light of everything that's happened, I make a decree that any people, nation, language, that speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made as sheep. Now we know from when I taught lesson two what that means. Their houses will come be turned into outhouses. Remember that? Yeah, if you were here, you remember that. So that's the old outhouse threat that he puts them. If you say anything against that God, you're going to be put to death and your property is going to be turned into an outhouse because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Now, can you imagine how that news spreads when these people go back to their own provinces to work and govern? And they tell this story. The message. These people become evangelists for the God of Israel. And knowledge about the true and living God. The one true and living God. Spreads throughout the entire Babylonian empire. And that's why when the wise men come. To visit Jesus. From the east. From Babylon. They have understanding. About who Jesus is. And about the Messiah. And about the God of Israel. Because. The Jewish religion has spread throughout the entire empire. And then the final result, verse 30. And if this isn't a reversal. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice the word promoted in the province of Babylon. He actually gives them more authority than they had before. And so these guys who were hoping that they would be put to death the chaldeans hoping that these three would be put to death and they probably would have been raised themselves into their positions end up having these guys promoted even to higher positions, and along with daniel the four these three plus daniel are basically running the entire affairs of the entire babylonian empire for king nebuchadnezzar and so that ends chapter three now let me give you two major lessons that we've had other kinds of lessons in in the uh, passage but let me give you two lessons two other lessons that you can take with you. Number one, when you serve and trust God, you are indestructible until God says otherwise. I don't care what anyone tries to do to you. When you're serving God and you're trusting God, you're indestructible until God is finished with you. And it's very important that you understand that no one has the ability to harm you beyond the limits that God sets not even Satan himself not even Satan himself when Satan comes and wants to hurt Job and actually take his life God sets a limit God is in charge not Satan not the leaders of this world okay number 2 second major lesson the duty of believers is to remind the state of its limitation the duty of believers is to remind the state of its limitations. The state is responsible to God. The state is responsible to God and we're to call their attention to that fact in a way that makes the state listen. The state is not to set its own religion thus being ahead of the religion, or having a state religion, the state must realize that God has the ultimate authority over the state, and any time the state steps beyond its bounds and tries to do what only God can do, it has stepped beyond its limitations, and we need to call the state on these types of things. Now, how do we do it? Well, we can do it through legislation if we live in a country that has a democracy. But guess what? Many countries don't have democracies, do they? And therefore, you may have to call the attention to the government in other ways. With these guys, they were willing to be martyrs. They were willing to put their lives on the line. Sometimes we may have to do that. Sometimes it involves protesting. Sometimes it involves suffering for righteousness. Just as many people have suffered for righteousness. Because they chose to obey God rather than man, showing that God, not man, has the ultimate authority over nations. And even kings are under the authority of God. So when Paul says, Don't you know, Jesus, that I have the authority to put you to death? Jesus responds, You have no authority except that which God gives you. So it's important that we realize that uh, that God is the ruler of nations, He's the one who raises up kings and sets them down. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the time that we could spend today in chapter 3 and help us to take some of these principles home. Help us to realize that you are in every battle that we, that we go through when we are trusting and we're serving you. Uh, your presence uh, through the Holy Spirit Through your angels that you send, we don't even, sometimes we don't even realize they're there, are there. Each step of the way. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, when we indeed put our faith in you, that you are a God who delivers. Our God is able to deliver. And what a message we can take with us today. And even though a king says, who can deliver you? We saw in this passage, that you indeed not only have the power but you do deliver us and that no one can hurt us because you've protected us and you put a hedge around us all for your glory that your name will be spread wherever we go we will acknowledge you and say that we serve the one true and living God in Jesus name we pray amen